You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org.
Thank you for coming in. Welcome to Black Forest Chapel. I'd love to invite you all to stand with us if you're able for our first song. Yet thought I knew the 
So this is the time that we'd normally pass around the baskets for offering, but right now we're just doing donations online, or we have the boxes in the back. You all bow your heads and then we'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the freedom to all gather here today and getting us here safely. I pray that you will please help us to continue to have open hearts and minds and ears as we listen to you and take in your word and the songs that you give us to sing for you. And I pray, Lord, that you please help us to not take for granted all the many, many blessings that you give us. Please help us, Lord, to remember that it all comes from you and that we will generously give back as you have given to us. In your name we pray. Amen.
Good, I'm on. Thank you. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. I love that song. So, good morning. My name is Lee Heitman. I'll be, uh, well, I actually have the privilege this morning of leading us through the Lord's Supper for communion this morning. We're going to do it a little bit differently. But first, I want to read some scriptures. So, um, if you could turn to your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But when I started putting this together and thinking about the things that I wanted to do uh, this morning and talk to you about, I kind of thought of some different themes. And a friend of mine had actually preached on this, so I told him I'd go ahead and use this in a future communion. But three things to think about. So look around, look to the past, and look to the future, and look within. Okay, let's see how these verses apply to that. So look around. So in his letter to the Corinthian church, they were a pretty dysfunctional church. There was disunity, there was sin within the church. And so Paul's going to admonish them to, hey, as the people of God, as the church, we've got to be united and we need to be looking out for each other. So that's the kind of look around that I'm talking about. Look around at each other. We're the, we're the church of God. We're to care for each other. We're to look out for each other. And we're to have unity within our body. Verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are proved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So Paul's saying there's disunity. People aren't looking out for each other, and there's selfishness uh, within that church body. Uh, Also later in verses 33 and 34, he says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So what he's saying is, look around. We're the body. We're the church of Christ. We're to be united. We're not to have dissension among us. And we're to look out for each other. The second point is look to the future. Well, look to the past and then look to the future. So let's take a look at verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what Paul is saying is we've got to look to the past. Our past is in Jesus Christ. He died on Calvary for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to behold that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We look to the past, to what Jesus did for us. The cup uh, that we're going to have represents his blood that was spilled for us. The bread that we'll partake of represents his body that was broken up for us. We need to think to the past and remember what he did. But then that last verse I read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're looking to the future. He's coming again. He's coming back for his people, and that's us. It's the people of God, those that believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's got this great kingdom plan for us. There will be a time when we will dwell with him in heaven. So we look with great hope, with great confidence to that future time when we will be with him. Let's kind of take a look at the last point then, what Paul tells us too. So not only are we looking around and caring for each other and keeping unity within the body, we're looking to the past, we're looking to the future, but Paul tells us we need to examine ourselves. We examine ourselves in a couple ways. What is our relationship with God and what is our relationship with each other? Okay, those are very important. Second one with each other obviously ties to the first point. Look around you. Is our relationship with each other good? Within your families, is the relationship solid within that family? Is there any strife or a dissension in the family? Those things we need to confess to God. Let's see what Paul says. So I'm going to read from verses 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So those verses tell us we need to examine ourselves too. Look at our relationship with each other, but more importantly, our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So... As we're going to be passing out the elements, if I could have uh, our servers come forward, please. As we pass out the elements, I want you to take time to kind of examine uh, these things that we talked about. Look around, look to the past, look to the future, think about Jesus Christ, and then also, more importantly, examine your own heart. Is your attitude right with God and with each other? Gentlemen, if you go ahead and grab a tray and serve those. The elements, what we've done is it's gluten-free elements, the wine as well, actually it's grape juice. The grape juice and the bread are together. It's a gluten-free bread. So gentlemen, go ahead and pass those out.
Yeah, gentlemen, come on up. And when he had given thanks, Jesus broke it, referring to the bread, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let me close this in prayer. And actually, I'm going to read more from uh, Paul. But I'll use this as my closing prayer and benediction. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Yeah.
Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Lee, for leading us this morning. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20. We'll be there for a little while. You might as well just put something in there to remember this is where we're going to be. It's good to see more and more of God's people coming to worship together and and yet, this is the, this is still the road that's empty. Is the, this, we always get, we always want courtside tickets to sports events and games, but when it comes to the church, like, no, we want to be way in the back, the nosebleed. <clears throat> Let's pray this morning as we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your presence this morning, always. You promise never to leave us, never forsake us. You are with us. You are our rock, the rock of our salvation, Lord, and you are the true God, and there is none like you, Lord. You are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity. You have no beginning and have no end. You are the creator, God. You are Lord. You are Yahweh. You are the great I am, the self-existent one. You are all-powerful and all-knowing and present everywhere all the time. And we just are so thankful, Lord, for who you are because we can, we can have peace only because of you. Because you are sovereign, you reign and you rule, and you are in control of the things that we um, have no control of. And Lord, we're, we're, we're your creation. We, we've been made in your image. We are to be image bearers and because of sin that has been marred and twisted, Lord, but there has been a distortion. But because of Christ, we are being restored through your Son as we are being sanctified and becoming holy. And Lord, thank you for the work you've done to redeem us. Thank you for dying for us on the cross as we just looked back and celebrated together as your family that you took the sins of all of us on yourself and you, by your blood, Lord, you atone for those sins. And when we put our faith in you, in you alone, we are saved. And we have eternal life with you and we have your Holy Spirit indwelling us, Lord. And so now we can, as worshipers, true worshipers, Father, we can worship in spirit and in truth. 
Help us with that, Father, and not to worship with any other man-made forms or false gods or idols, Father. We don't need any of those things, and those things are an affront to you, Lord. They're sinful. So help us this morning as we learn more about your moral law, about your Ten Commandments, and how they apply to us today. We want to be true worshipers, Father. We want to understand how we have veered and how we have given in the temptation in some ways that are just even undercurrent, Lord. We don't even realize we're doing it. Lord, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, help us to see so that we might truly have power in this life by your Spirit. We would not grieve you, Lord. So we thank you for your word. Um, may it expose our hearts. May we be laid bare this morning. But for the purpose of being sanctified, made holy, so we might be encouraged and built up and fed by your word and released as your people into the world to be on mission. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you've been following along with us, we are in Exodus 20. We're at the Ten Commandments. The, the law of God is, is being spoken by God himself on Mount Sinai, so... Um, God, in his, uh, um, in his perfect way, in his perfect timing, he made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with him that he would be made into a great nation, that he would be his, they would be his people, that he would be their God, that he would give them a great land, uh, the promised land to dwell. And, and part of that promise was that they would be sojourners in a foreign land and that they would be held captive. They would be in bondage for over 400 years, but God would release them. He would judge that nation and he would ultimately give them great possession as they left. And, and all of those things took place as we've seen in this uh, story of the Exodus. And so the people are now in the desert and they've come to Mount Sinai and God has made a, um, a covenant with his people there. He has, um, uh, through his servant Moses, said that he wants uh, these people that he has saved to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. And so to be a holy nation, they need to be holy as God is holy. And so he's providing the standard. This is what it means to be holy. And so he's giving them the law. We know that we talked about this last week. The law was never meant to save. They were already a saved people. They were already brought out. They were redeemed. Nothing that they did merited that. It was because God loved them. And why did he love them? He loved them because he loved them. This was his divine choice. And so he's, he's brought these people and he's um, making this covenant with them, this contract with them as their king, and they are to be his subjects, and they are to pro- provide loyalty and walk according to his law, and he will provide protection and all the, the benefits of his kingdom. And the people agreed to it, and, and so now the king is visiting his people, and he's, he's giving them, he's speaking to them face-to-face, if you will. He's giving them this law. And we, we, we left this amazing picture, right, on Mount Sinai. We, the, the whole mountain is shaking, right, and trembling, and the people are trembling, too. The earthquake probably helps hide that a little bit, so if they're shaking a little bit, they can't tell. Everybody's shaking, and the whole thing's going, right? There's thunder, there's lightning, there's, there's, uh, it's wrapped, the mountain is wrapped in smoke and dark cloud, and there's fire. It's just an incredible picture, and there's trumpet blasts coming from somewhere, and, and so this, this is an amazing picture, and God is, is coming down and visiting his people, but at the same time, he is concealing himself because he is God. He's too holy. You can't look on him without dying. And he put all these provisions, and he put the, the caution tape up, and the people are to come this far and no further, right? Only Moses and, and Aaron can go up. And so, and so there's, there's this great picture, and now God is speaking these words to him, right? Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, and this is kind of the preamble, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's saying, I am the Lord. I brought you out. There's no one else did this. There was no other help that I I had. This was just me. And he's trying to set the stage here because they are part of a culture. They, and, and we are too, but they were part of a culture in Egypt and then the surrounding nations and then going into the promised land and all the, the various nations that they'll be overtaking there. They're, they're idolatrous. They have many, many gods. We saw in Egypt, there's many gods in Egypt. There's a pantheon of gods for every creature and everything under, under, you know, under the sky and in the sky and in the water. They, they had gods for everything. They were trying to cover their basis, right? They worship everything but the true God. And so God has to reset their minds that that's not how this works. He's the only God. Did any of those gods save you? Who brought you out of Egypt? The Lord, your God, did. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, God reminds them of this. It says, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions or his feathers. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. The Lord alone did this. God doesn't have a sidekick, right? Every superhero movie, everything, we, we always see there's always a partner. There's always someone who provides comic relief or some type of ridiculous help. Or There's always someone that we... God doesn't need anyone. There's no sidekick for God. He did this by himself. No other foreign God helped him. Right? And further, if you read in verse 31, as, as God is, is talking about the judgment that will come and the, the disaster that will come upon the enemies of God... He says, for their rock is not as our rock. So their rock is actually a rock. It's just a, it's a stone. It's nothing. It's carved image. It's, it's, it's a man made. It's, it's nothing. They can't, it doesn't speak. It doesn't hear. It doesn't listen. It can't help them. Their rock's not as our rock, capital R. Our enemies are by themselves. Our enemies are by themselves. When we put our hope in false gods, we're alone because they can't help. Verse 37, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the, the wine of their drink offerings. So they put out sacrifices and all the best choice. They're putting all these things out for these carved images and these statues and these, where, where's their help? Where are their gods? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. There is no protection. Their rock is not like our rock, Moses says. And so God didn't have any help. He didn't need any help. It was him and him alone that brought them out. And so it, it stands the reason then the first commandment makes sense. You shall have no other gods before me because there aren't any other real gods. He is the only God. And we talked about this last week, that he is the God that saves, not these false gods. He's the God that sanctifies, not these false gods. And he's the God ultimately that satisfies. None of these false gods can satisfy. And we, hopefully, you went home with some applications and kind of took a look at your life and an inventory of the things that you put your, give your attention to, what has your affection, because God is not interested in a divided heart. You can't just kind of straddle the line and say, God, I'm going to worship you on Sundays and maybe Tuesday afternoons, and you're the best God, and I love you most, but I like these other gods too. 
and I want to worship them. I, I like worshiping myself, and I like worshiping my, my spouse or my kids or, or this, this, this job I have or the status that I have or the wealth that I have. I, I like, and, and Jesus is, is telling us in, in Matthew, you can't serve two masters. You can't do it. You can't serve two masters. So hopefully you were able to take a look at your life and see, where have I spread myself with these other gods? Because we do it. Sometimes we don't realize it, but we do it. And it has become acceptable because we are, we are unfortunately kind of, um, kind of riding the tide of our culture. We just allow these things to take place instead of really putting a firm foot down and saying, this is what God says, and this is how I am to live, and so I'm not going to do that anymore. And God, forgive me, and we repent of those sins, and we begin to walk with him again. And so we, we will have no other gods before him because there aren't any other gods. They're false gods. They're nothing. They can't save you, they can't sanctify you, and they can never satisfy you. And so we come to the second commandment, which kind of rolls off of the first one, and they are two separate ones. Some look at them as the same or linked together. Um, they are to some degree. Obviously, there's a progression here, but the first one's very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. And I mentioned to you last week, there's... Plenty of places in our culture where people are trying to rewrite the Ten Commandments, and, we do, and they do it every day, right? And what was the, the humanist Ten Commandments that we talked about last week? They, they had to wait till number five, but number five was there is no God, right? And then number nine was pretty much do whatever you want, right? So here, here's all the suggestions. Here's the way we should live. Here's what we should do. But really, it's all subjective based on how you feel. And I'm sure it's even changed from last week to this week, and it's all a whole different list, Right? It's pretty much, there's no absolute truth for those who um, believe everything is relative. And so as long as your truth doesn't step on my truth, then we're good. Right? Just keep your truth over there, and I'll keep my truth. And as long as we don't meet, and as soon as we meet, then there's a problem because my truth is better than your truth. And then we have issues. Right? There's, not, there's no footing there. There's, no, there's nothing to stand on. Their rock is not like our rock. They have no hope in anything. D.L. Moody, Moody says it this way. He says, Has the human heart ever been satisfied with these false gods? Can pleasure or riches fill the soul that is empty of God? How about the atheist, the deist, the pantheist? What do they look forward to? Nothing. When trouble and affliction and disappointment rise and overtake them, they have no God to call upon. This is essentially what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy, right? You'll, you'll notice, and here's the important thing with, this is for our hearts, obviously, that we um, are not divided in our worship of God because we are seeking after other false gods in our life. And we do this, and you have to understand that this is going to, it's going to happen again next week and probably the week after, and you're going to be drawn away, and Satan is going to try to trick you and deceive you and say, no, 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 this is just, this is just your 401k, and this is just your retirement. You need to be responsible with those things, and you need to be, no, but, but all of a sudden now you're, you're watching the stocks more often, you're looking at your portfolio, you're looking at your bank account, you're putting your hope in your cash reserves. And when they start to get a little bit low, what happens? Your hope starts to fade. Why? Because that's become a god to you. You're putting your trust in that thing. We talked about that last fall with the political cycle. And how, I mean, it's depending on which side you're on, you're, you're disappointed, you're hurt, you're wondering what's next, and you're, there's no peace there. Why? Because we're putting our hope in the wrong things instead of in God alone. Only God can satisfy. 
the other side of that is obviously that we are to be giving God all the glory. We are to be his people in the earth. And we are to, how do we shine a light into the nations? By worshiping the true God. If we look like the rest of the world and we have many gods, why would they come to him? Right? Why would they come to him? If you notice when people that have no use of God, have no use of church, they decide they're, they're, they're unbelievers, non-believers, whether they're atheists or whether they believe in a divine being and they just don't know who he is and he's the man upstairs and he's whatever, whatever moniker they put on him, they don't believe in him until trouble hits, until affliction happens, until they're suffering. And now they're, they're, they're looking for the things that they've put their hope in and there's no hope there. They've been living without hope. The rock's not like our rock, and so there's no, they can't find help, they can't find peace, they can't find any protection, they don't know what to do. And so you'll find that all of a sudden they might show up next to you, and all of a sudden now they might, they might be a little more interested in hearing about what you believe, and, and maybe they actually would be interested in receiving prayer now when a month ago they, they just mocked you, and now pray, pray to what? That's pointless. There's nothing out there. But now they're suffering, and I, I want something to be out there. I need something to be out there. Right? And so you'll find, I, I remember working at a, in a corporate job many years ago, and um, as, as a younger believer, I'd, I'd have my Bible out during breaks. or They knew I was different because I would come to the little coffee meetings in different places or we'd go out to lunch and they would tell jokes and I wouldn't laugh at their jokes. And I, and I would say things differently. They would mock and make fun of their wives. And I was like, my wife's awesome. And what, what's wrong with you guys? Like, I, there, was, there was a difference there. And so then I start, stopped being invited to lunches and I stopped being in, they would find their little circles elsewhere. Where's Mike? Let's hide from Mike. We don't want to talk to him. He's, got a, he's a buzzkill, right? He makes us feel not very happy right now and we want to we want to do the things we want to do and so so then i find myself kind of alone in that regard but then all of a sudden every once in a while i'm sitting in my cube and someone kind of comes up and they're just leaning just don't say anything i'm, I'm like how you doing like, good yeah how's it going well i'm glad you asked and then they start sharing something that happened maybe it was a diagnosis or something with their marriage or something with their kid and why are they coming to me because I, I, I worship differently. I don't worship all of these other gods like they do. And when it comes down to it, when suffering comes and when difficult things come and the big questions of life come, they don't go to that group that's telling good jokes and they don't go out to lunch with the guys who are crass and making fun of their wives. They come to us who are hopefully walking different in this world, who worship one God, who don't have any other gods before us. So there's a great impact on your ministry, on, on just this. We're, we're coming here to be encouraged, to be built up, to grow in our knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, but we're, go, we're supposed to go out. And do we look any different? Do we provide anything different? Can we, do we have a voice to say, well, this is the true God? Just like Paul in the Oropagus said, I, I notice you have a, a, a statue here uh, um, uh, to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you who he is. And we'll come back to that text in Acts 17 here in a minute. So just consider that. Consider that these, this, this draw, this temptation to worship other gods is very real. We have to be cautious of that. The second commandment is like it, but so the first commandment is about worshiping the right God. There's a lot of gods out there. We want to worship the true God. 
the right God, not all the other gods. The second commandment is about worshiping the right God, but in the right way. God dictates how we worship him. We don't get to do that. We don't get to say, okay, I believe in the one true God. I believe in the God of the Bible, but I want to worship you the way that I feel more comfortable worshiping. That's what this is about here. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, a graven image, an idol. We are not to make idols. An idol, specifically in that time, was something crafted by a tool. It was anything man-made, really. So if you use a chisel, if you, whatever it is, whether it's wood or stone or metal, um, an idol was something that was man-made, um, and it was to represent a divine being. So there was a divine being out there, and so we would carve or make an idol that represented so that we could see and touch and feel and, and kind of have this, this image in front of us, and we would worship that idol as a way of worshiping whatever deity the idol represented. And God said, you're not, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and God's very, very clear about um, what that looks like, too. And it's, um, it's really helpful for us uh, that God is clear on these things. You know, sometimes I ask my son to do something like, hey, can you make sure you sweep out the garage? And, and then they come back, and I look, and it's not swept out. Well, yeah, I, I, I swept it out. I just swept out you know, that, that one part that I could reach or no, no, I, I said the garage and okay. Yeah. And then I come back. It's not done. Well, you didn't say when I should sweep it out. Like, well, it's implied that you would do it right now. Right. You don't have a busy schedule. As far as I know, you can take care of this. And, and then, okay. So then I go back out. It's not, well, why is it, why is there dust on that side? Well, I swept out the garage. This is kind of a storage area. This really isn't that right. So we have to always be, we have to always qualify everything and make things very, very specific sometimes. And, and we need that as adults too. Sometimes people tell us, Hey, you know, um, I need you to do this and take care of this. And unless we get information about how they want it done and when they want it done, sometimes we just take our liberties with it. We're all guilty of that to some degree. And God's making sure that we know and that his people know that it's anything in creation. Anything in creation is sinful against God. Any carved image that we bow down to. And so that is in heaven above. And heaven above, you know, when we look at heaven in the scriptures, it can mean the spiritual, spiritual realm. And so we shouldn't be bowing down to angels. And we saw that in Revelation with John. And the angel is showing him all these things. And John's about to bow down to worship. The angel's like, no, 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 no. I'm just a servant too. I'm, he's a created being. He's not God. And you shouldn't be bowing down to him. And even John, in the midst of getting all this revelation and writing all these things down, he was falling prey to that too. And the angel stopped him. So whether it's the spiritual realm, maybe it's the uh, heavenly bodies, meaning the sun, the moon, the stars, or just heaven, meaning the sky. It's pretty much anything up there, right? Anything up there is, is, is off limit. You can't create a, an image. You can't carve anything. Or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So it covers everything. Nothing that is created can be used to worship God. Nothing. 
You shall not bow down before them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, does that mean that we can't be artistic? Does that mean we can't use tools and create things in general? No, that doesn't mean that at all. If we look at Deuteronomy 31, God himself is making a provision I'm sorry, Exodus 31, I apologize. Exodus 31 is making a provision for this when it comes to the, the, the tabernacle and the ark. And so Exodus 31, verse 1. And we need this. We need, we need help with the specifics because sometimes we'll say, well, I can't do anything. I can't carve anything out. I can't have anything around that looks nice, right? I can never have nice things, God, and now you've taken away all the nice things, right? I've got to make my walls bare. That's not what he's saying here. If you bow down before those things, that's the problem. Jeff, uh, Exodus 31, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the son of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. God actually set his Holy Spirit upon this man to be able to do these things and, and have artistic license. So that's, that's not what it's talking about. It's not about artistry. It's about idolatry. If they create something and then begin to bow down to it as if they're worshiping the true God, that is the problem. That is sin. That is a affront to God's law. That's something we are not to do. And we see this happen, if you just, one page over here, Exodus 32, and we'll come to this text a little later. You might recall the, the golden calf incident, and Moses is on the, he's getting the, the tablets, he's getting the, the full law, he's been up there for a while, and the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain until the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. We think we have a, an, an attention span problem, right? These guys, I mean, they're, they're still in the presence. I mean, just, what they just saw, what they just experienced, and, and to, that quickly turn because this is what they know and this is what God's trying to draw out of them. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. Remember, God's the one that brought them out. Yes, Moses was the leader, but God actually brought them out. So Aaron said to them, and Aaron is complicit here, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, <coughs> excuse me, and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. I mean, this is, we know that this is a large group of people. They are stiff-necked. They are, they are impressively persuasive with their grumbling and their complaining and their desire to kill anyone who doesn't agree with them. And so we, we see this pressure here, but Aaron gave in to them, and he shouldn't have. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And here's Aaron's compromise in this. Verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
So Aaron was trying to worship the Lord God, Yahweh, the great I am, by way of this golden calf. It's not that Aaron thought that it was another God, but he's trying to worship God by way of this, this thing that they could see. This, for some reason, as, as fallen sinful man, we want, to, we want to worship something that's tangible. We want to be able to control something. We want to worship with our senses versus worshiping with our heart. And to some degree, it, it makes us feel better because when we're distant from God and we're not spending time with him and we feel apart from him when we're grieving his spirit, we can still look the part. We can still do external things and we can still make things and craft things and do ministry and use things in the church and we can, we can still feel spiritual without actually giving God our heart. Right? We can worship him with what? With idols instead of with in spirit and in truth from the depth of our heart, with a repentant, pure heart, with the Holy Spirit that's agreeing with us and with the truth of God's word as we're supposed to worship him, John 4. We're supposed to worship God based on who he is, how, who he's revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. We are made in his image. We're not supposed to be making him in our image. That's exactly what we do. Remember that the, this was not something that just kind of came out of the fire, even though that's what Aaron said, right? Later on in, the, in that same chapter, um, verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods who will, when he's talking to Moses about this and talking to his brother, who brought us up, uh, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, letting you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and this, out came this calf, right? It was, it was, it was incredible. Well, no, he said he had a tool. He had a grave. So he's lying. And he, I don't know, maybe he doesn't know Moses is writing all this down, right? He has it all up here. <laughs> he's lying to him. And so what happened? Why is the bull? Why is this, this calf so important? Remember, one of, the, one of the most important gods in Egypt was the apis bull. Remember we talked about that? It was, it was the plague on the livestock. It was the judgment against these gods and against this god. And so the apis bull was this re- ridiculous, there was a whole ceremony and it was, there was a reincarnation that took place at least every 25 years. And, and so all these bulls would be, would be put into this, this one special area and then the, the priests and the scribes and people that were in, in the know of what to look for, they would come and they would look for certain hair patterns and, oh yeah, that one's got a little white there, that, that could be him right there. Oh yeah, this is, this is apis, this is the reincarnation of apis. So that bull would be, would be uh, given milk and kind of raised after 40 days, only certain people could see him, and, and then he would be an oracle to the, to the people of Egypt, and so there'd be two chambers, and one lucky chamber, one unlucky chamber, and so depending on where the bull goes, that would tell them what they should be doing with their life, right? And if someone walked up and the bull licked your clothes, that means you were going to have a tranquil but really short life. So you didn't want really the, you didn't want the bull to lick your clothes, you probably were just backing away a little bit, and no, I didn't see a tongue, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine, Right? And, and, and then if there's kids outside playing and they're happy while the bull's eating or something, there was other... These were all... It's ridiculous, right? But this is what they believed. This was just one of many. <laughs> After 25 years, if the apis bull did not die, if they died, there'd be this big celebration. It would actually have its own sarcophagus, this giant thing, and its own part in the temple, and they would put it, put it away. And, and then they'd have, but if it didn't die after 25 years, the priest would secretly, they didn't know about this, the priest would secretly take it and kill it, right? Have a nice steak dinner, probably, because they're hypocrites, and they don't, 
And then, and then they would go, oh, Apis Bull's dead. We'll have to, it, they just perpetuated the myth, the mythology, and it was a control component too. And what did God do? He judged them. He killed, he, he killed all of their livestock and all of the land. But the livestock in, in, for Israel wasn't touched. And God's saying, is, this is your God? I just wiped out all of your gods. They did nothing. They made a kind of, like, that's it. That's all they could do. That is your God, this smelly, disgusting thing. It's an animal. And so when, when they made this golden calf, it, it wasn't by accident. This was important to them. This was still in them. And it's hard for us, I think, as Christians as, new, as believers in Christ now, we are to be separate from the world. We're to do things differently, and yet we allow much of the world into our, into our life, into our Christianity. And God says, you can't do any of this because I'm a jealous God. Then this jealousy, this is, a, this is a possessiveness. This is a zeal, a burning, passionate love for something that belongs to God. Right. We think of jealousy in the negative, the, kind of the envy side of things, because we're jealous of something that someone has that, that doesn't belong to us. We, we, we're jealous of that person's car or that person's you know, athletic ability or their academic ability or their heights or their, whatever it is. We're, we're, we're jealous of things that don't belong to us typically, and that's sinful. We see that in Galatians 5 and other places. That's a, that's a sinful jealousy. We're not to covet or be envious of things that do not belong to us. For God, though, this is a divine jealousy. This is a, this is a great zeal, a burning, passionate love for things that belong to him. His glory belongs to him alone. He won't share it with anyone else. His glory is his. And he's jealous for that. And he's jealous for his people who belong to him. They are a treasured possession. And so God says he is a jealous God. He means it. He's not going to share with anybody. God, as much as we are to share with one another, God doesn't share right? when it comes to his glory and his people. And when they, when they make idols and start to wander off into worshiping these things instead of God himself, there's, there's sin. There's a problem. And so what does that look like for us? What are some things, once again, we're, we're not carving little trinkets, typically, right? We don't have wooden things and metal things and stone things that we're bowing down to the Lord. And, but, but we do have things, you know, we do have things in the church. Tradition can become an idol. Tradition is good. It's helpful for us to, to, to be able to anticipate, to, to do the things that are important to us, to bring other people in, along with us. As a, so doing certain things that we do all the time is not a bad thing, but when it becomes the thing, and if it hinders your worship, and you can't worship anymore because that thing's been taken away, then that's a problem of your heart. You're trying to worship the true God, but in an unhealthy way, with a false idol. You've created something that is more important to you than God himself. That's, that's what an idol is. So traditions can become that for us, right? You might be looking at the, the cross and the, the, the wood art behind us. This is, this is an art piece that covered the old stained glass window, and there was purpose in it with backlighting and other things. And this is, it's, it's beautiful. It's a depiction, really. It just shares the, the gospel visibly. Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again to new life, and, and we are we're risen with him if we put our faith in him. So it, it shows us the sacrifice the, 
forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection that came with the empty grave. And so it, it should help us. It, it's okay for us to have something in the wall. But if, if we're bowing down to that and we're worshiping that versus the word of God that describes what happened, then there's a problem. And if that ever became a problem, we, we would address it. But tradition, things in this building, um, how, many, how many church wars are there over colors of carpet and chairs? I mean, it's, it's a joke amongst evangelical Christians. It's a joke that we laugh about, but it's, it's, it divides churches. It creates stress and pressure and contention, and that's, it's terrible. It shouldn't be a joke. It, it shouldn't even exist. But we do that because this is important to us. And what about the chair or, or something else in this building? What about the building? For some people, the building becomes an idol. It represents worship to you. And so without the building, you would be lost. So ultimately, we, what we have to look at is we, should, we need to be able to knock all these things down, knock down all the things that we think are important in this place. If the walls fell and there was nothing here and it was a field, could you show up and worship God? without hindrance. Could you do that? Could we open God's word and sing together and, and listen to God's word and receive it and obey and walk in light of the scriptures? Could we do that? Or do you need all of these things? They're, they're good and they're helpful tools, but they're not our object of worship. We have to be careful with that. The Bible can be a means of control and authority and Knowledge that puffs up, and the Bible can become an idol to people because they just want to they want to memorize everything and want to know everything. They want to feel like they're spiritual, maybe when they when they have they they spend all their time on certain doctrines or systematic theology, and that can become a distraction. It can become unbalanced because then you what you lose your heart for for God and for people. Some of you are doing your reading plans, which is great. Has your reading plan become an idol? I got to check that off. I got to get this done. Right? I got to stay on task. I got to. Well, Mike, you just told us that the reading plan is helpful, and you just gave it to us. Now you're telling us it's an idol, and what's what's going on? You're not a very good, you're not very good at communicating these things. You're kind of split. No, it it is a helpful tool, but I know some of you are out there. I gotta get that. I, I gotta get this one checked off. I can't leave the house unless I read through. I'm gonna bust through First Kings right now, and I'm gonna do this, and right. I'm gonna try to speed read. And what's the purpose of opening the Bible? The, the reading plan is just to help you. It's an accountability tool to keep you on track. It's, it's to help you kind of parse out and be in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Psalms, and other places. But what's the, what's the purpose is to be fed by God's word, to walk in intimacy with your God, to grow and to be encouraged, ultimately to receive truth so that you walk out into a world that, that is against all those things, against God, who doesn't believe in God, you will have truth to share. You'll have words to speak. Ultimately, it's to glorify our God. So that's what we should be doing when we walk away. But if the reading plan has become a source of contention for you and stress for you, and it's, it's, perhaps it's an idol. And for, for those of us who like to read and, and get knowledge so that we can look spiritual and possibly control situations and be important in the church, that's a problem. Right? We don't. How is that helpful for anybody? 
The other side of that is people, well, the Bible's important, and I know a few things, but I really just love people. I just want to be, I just, I'm very compassionate, and I love God's grace, and so people become an idol, and compassion becomes an idol. It really is, it's really insidious sometimes, right? And what I mean by that is when people sin in the church, and there's, there's deliberate, intentional, um, unrepentant sin in the church. What's our job as God's people? If we know the Bible, it's to engage in church discipline for the, for the care of our brother and sister. We're to approach them. We're to confront them in their sin. If they don't listen, we're to bring someone else with us. If they still don't listen, we're to bring it in front of the church. We're actually to bring it in front of the church and say, this is what, this is what our brother and sister is doing. And we're exposing that for their sake. And if they still don't listen, what are we supposed to do? Treat them like an unbeliever, like a tax collector, right? Remove them from fellowship. Don't give them the benefit of our fellowship until they come back to the Lord. There, there's, the goal is repentance. The goal is restoration, not punishment. But the discipline is, is, is necessary. So if you, if you just love people, well, let's just keep loving them. You're just enabling them to do whatever they want. It doesn't help. That's why a lot of churches don't do church discipline because it, it feels harsh. It feels unchristian. Like, well, if you know God's word, but if you err on the side of people, it's an idol to you. You, wanna, you want the favor of men. If you think about it logically from a parental perspective, what do you do when your child is disobedient and they won't listen to you? You remove things from their life, right? You send them to their room, take away, phone's gone, computer's gone. You like that? Are you enjoying that? That's gone, right? You take away everything that they could possibly enjoy. You remove them from the situation. You leave them in isolation to consider, and then it's a painful process. And what do they do? Sorry, Right? Why? Well, they don't know why they're sorry, but they're sorry. They're sorry that they're in this prison of aloneness and isolation and with no entertainment. And it's, you're removing all these constellations, all the things that make them feel good, and you're not enabling the sin. And then there's restoration. There's reconciliation. It kind of resets. It's funny how every time I discipline my sons after something happens, there's a, there's a closeness there relationally that I can't even explain sometimes. It's just... You would think there'd be the opposite, resentment or something. No, there's a, there's a need for that structure. There's a need to be reconciled. There's a need for good things. And so when God tells us to discipline within the church body, it's, it's, for, the, it's for the benefit of the person who's in sin. We've told them. We've told them a couple times. We've talked to them as a church body, as a family. They won't listen. They're out. Like God will deal with them. And as painful as it is for us sometimes, that's how we actually love them. So God tells us how to love people. We don't get to make that up. If we do, if we decide, this is how I want to love someone, that's an idol, and we think we're worshiping God, but we're doing it in our own way. We've crafted our own version of discipline. Here's the best way to do it, God. You don't know what you're doing. Your word is antiquated. You don't understand. We live in 2021. We don't spank anymore. We don't talk down to our kids. We edify. We give them trophies everywhere. God, you don't get it. This is how we, this is how we do things. Now, no, God gets it. He sees what's going on. We see what's going on, right? We want to form God in our own image, and the world does this too. There are some Christians and believers who claim to be walking with the Lord, who ignore parts of the Bible. They're annihilationists. They say that there's nothing after we die. Nothing. There's nothing out there. God just destroys us. And so we, we lose all this idea of heaven and reward. But what's the, what's the benefit is we, we lose judgment in hell. So it, help, it helps you to feel hopeful that, that I don't really have to be good. It doesn't really matter. 
because there's nothing after. And then what's the other side of it? Universalism. Well, we're all saved. We're good. Forget all the parts about judgment and hell and wrath, and that's not really, that's just, God just, he barks, he, you know, he has a big voice, and he says a lot of stuff, but he doesn't really mean it. So we're all going to heaven. What is that? That's little idols that we carve. I'm going to worship you, God, but in my way, this makes me feel better. This is what I want to do. And we do this with, with ministry, unfortunately, too, within the church. This is the big one that I think we have to be aware of. Um, our ministry becomes an idol to us. It's an external way for us to, once again, look pious and productive and spiritual without really dealing with heart issues. And so are we worshiping these ministries? If the ministries are taken away or changed, right? Well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, I've heard that. This is the way I've always done it. I, I come in and I change everything. That's the way I've always done it, and it works pretty good, right? But nobody likes change. Nobody likes to do that because it makes them feel comfortable. I can control this because I know this. And when God says, no, we're going to do it a different way, then, then there's a lack of control. We can't manipulate this idol anymore, and then we feel like we're going to be exposed. And so ministry has a way of doing this. We have to watch and be careful that a ministry does not become an idol for us. And I always have this picture when it comes to us being together on mission for the kingdom of God. God is growing his kingdom. God grows his church. But within the church, oftentimes, we start building our own little kingdoms, our own little models of what it should look like. Oftentimes, we come to a new church, and we love that church for all the new things, and we love that church because, yeah, it's, it's very friendly and welcoming, and I like this, and I like that. And then within a very short period of time, we get out our blueprints from our last church. All right, now, let's see what I can do here to make this look like the church I just came from. Because that was comfortable, and I liked that, and I, this, this church is great, but I, I, want it to, I want it to be formed in my image of the things I want. I have this, once again, this, these little kingdoms being built. My kids used to play with the Duplo Legos. Remember those big Legos? Those things were awesome. They were just, because when you step on them, they didn't hurt as much as the little ones. So they would, they would, uh, one of them would, would pile it up nice and high, Right, and they build this big tower, and it was like, you know, to them it was this huge thing. And and then the other, the brother's always in the corner. He can smell when someone's building something. It's like, yeah, I feel my destructive twinge coming on. And so the other one's in the corner, just watching. You see a little head popping out, waiting for his chance to come over and strike it down. Be like, whap, and kick it and knock it down. And then there's a big fight and um, that whole thing, right? And that's not right in that context, but in the context of church and all of us. Perhaps in our corner, with our little Duplo box, we're trying to build our own little kingdoms. Well, this is my part of church, and this is what I think it should look like, and this is what I want it to do. And, and we build it up, and we start to protect it. And in that case, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, in that context, it's okay to walk over, swipe it down, and knock it over, right? Like, no, 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 no. In a loving way. No hitting. No hitting today, everyone. But in a loving way, so you, you seem to have, your heart seems to be bound up in this thing that you've built. And you seem to be less, in, in, less inclined to be with people and to love people. You really love this thing. And every time we give you a suggestion, you get angry and frustrated and stressed out about it. And every time we, we ask you to maybe add someone else in, you get kind of protective. And there's what's going on with your heart. 
Maybe the kinder way to do this is take one block off at a time, right? And we help one another with these idols that we call ministry. We have to be careful of that. This is God's church. This is his building. This is his stuff. We are stewards of it. It is their tools, their resources for us to be about the work of the gospel ministry. Not our own little kingdom building, but it'll be about God's kingdom. And so consider that as you, as you go home, as you, as you look at your own heart. What are some things? How do I worship God wrongly? What are some things I put in the place of God that make me feel better? How do I try to conform God into my own image? Do I worship God truly as he is revealed in the scripture? Do I worship in spirit and truth from the heart with the Holy Spirit confirming that Jesus is Lord? with purity, with confession, with repentance. Do I worship God that way in spirit? Do I worship God in truth based on what he says in the Bible? Or do I try to conform God into my own image so that he's a God that's containable? When we try to worship God through idols by making an image of him that's not true, we are taking an infinite God and trying to make him finite. We're taking the invisible God and trying to make him visible. We're, we're stripping him away of all of his attributes, all the things that make him God. That's sinful. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share himself, his glory, with any perceived ideas that we have, any creations in our minds. He wants our minds full. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to give him our, our full attention and not be divided in our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us this morning in such a personal way that we know you do. All of us come with different things going on this week and this weekend, and as we move into a new week, Lord, you know all the stuff that's in our in our hearts and on our minds, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would not seek out other gods to try to help us, because they are no help at all, because they're no gods at all. There is no one like you. You are the only true God. And Lord, may we seek you rightly and worship you rightly in spirit and in truth and not with any images or any forms that we have created in our own minds, Lord, about who you are and who we want you to be. Father, may we never say in this congregation or as your people, I like a God who is like this, dot, dot, dot. Lord, we have no right to fill in the blanks. You have given us exactly what we need to know who you are. And what's amazing, Lord, is as we, as we learn more about you, as we read your word, we, we learn that you are unsearchable, you are transcendent, that we'll never know everything about you, that our pursuit can never be exhausted, and that's an amazing thing. You are that big. You are that great. You are that amazing. You are that holy. You are that other. You are that separate. You are that transcendent, Lord. You are... Our, our language can't even contain, Lord, the right... We, we don't have the words to express who you are or even how to worship. But thank you for giving us words. Thank you for your grace in our life. And Father, we, we pray that if, if we sin against you in this way, that we know, Lord, that this iniquity is passed on to the third and fourth generation, Lord. And 
we are all accountable for our own sin, Father. And yet, Lord, when we continue to be unrepentant and continue to do the things we want to do and make you in the way we want to make you, Lord, we pass that on to our children. We leave a legacy of adultery, of unfaithfulness, idolatry. You are a jealous God. You will share your glory with no one. But Lord, your, your promise is also, though, that those who love you, those who turn to you and repent of their sin, you will bless for a thousand generations. It just shows the, the impact of your love over those who hate you, the impact of your grace, that there is always an opportunity to turn, Lord. We are never locked in because of other people's sin, Lord, but at the same time, we have an impact on our families. Help us, Lord to take this seriously. Help us to take the impact we have in this world seriously, our evangelism, Lord, how we speak to others, how we live, makes a difference. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessing, Lord. Help us to worship you properly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us for our final song.
on for you. Good morning, Black Forest Chapel. Just a short announcement. Uh, my name is Jennifer Bisher. I'm on your missions committee. One of the mandates of your missions committee is to help you know our missionaries and their mission. Um, in English, the word know is lacking. And Spanish has two words for it, probably more. Saber and conocer. Saber means you know about something, like I open a textbook and I can learn how to do algebra. Conocer means that you're personally acquainted with something, like my neighbor or my boss or my job, because I do those things and I interact with things. <laughs> so the last couple months, we have been able to conocer, to get to know a couple of our missionaries. How many of you that were here and stayed after feel like you know the Dunhams and you know the Barstads now that they've visited with us? Go ahead and raise your hand. It's a blessing, isn't it? So, March 28th, David Galvin from Life Network is going to be visiting us, and I hope you make plans to be here to learn about that ministry and to spend a wonderful time of fellowship, food, because that's very important, question and answers, and prayer for David in his ministry at Life Network. Thank you. Hi, my name is Katrina McAllister. I'm one of the members of the worship team at Black Forest Chapel, and I would like to invite any of you who play an instrument or sing or are just interested in talking more about the music ministry at our church to come to a meeting on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 13th. It'll be here um, at 9.30, 9.30 a.m. to 11. We'll have breakfast, we'll have coffee, um, Mike Hartle will be there to just kind of share the vision um, and, and uh, thoughts on um, true worship, authentic worship to the Lord and what that looks like here. And we'll also just be talking about, um, if you are interested in getting involved, how to go about doing that. So we'd love to have any of you come to that. Um, I think I got everything on there. And then right today, right after the service, right back here by the kitchen, we're going to be having an upper room student ministry meeting. Um, so again, any of you that are interested um, in middle school or high school ministry, please come join us. Current volunteers also. And we will have, I think, pizza and cinnamon rolls are on the menu. So um, just uh, let's see, is there anything else on that? Nope, I think that's it. Thank you very much. Just to be clear, <clears throat> I'm attending the worship ministry. I don't sing or play an instrument, but I do like food. So please feel free to join us. We'd just love to get to know you and see how you might be able to help us help serve the church and lead us in worship. So we would appreciate your attendance. And as we leave today, just an encouragement with Paul and the Oropagus sharing about this unknown God, this inscription, this altar, that we would do the same as we go to share who God is to the world around us who are worshiping false gods who really don't know him, that we might be encouraged to do so. Acts 17.24, 
This I proclaim to you, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet as he, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God bless you. You're dismissed. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.